this is Mel Majora. So I had our next guest on a radio show that I uh, used to work on and you know, downsizing radio, blah, blah, blah. But doing my own show now, as you know, Radio Soup, and I am a big fan of the Navy. My dad was in Korea on uh, US, New Jersey, BB-62. I don't know much that he did, but he proudly served. And I have pictures of him and it's, I never served, but I wanted to, but that's a whole other thing. But today we have Dave Baranek. Hope I'm saying that right, Dave. Oh, well, we'll get to that. Okay, we'll but get to that. close enough, and believe <laughs> me, it, I, I realize my last name is a challenge. Yeah, as so. is mine, so I apologize. Uh, Tomcat Rio is the latest book. It's got some great pictures, great stories, and Dave is a Top Gun instructor and a Navy flyer. So how are you today, Dave? Hi, I'm, I'm doing good, Mel. Thank you for having me on. And that's cool. Your dad was on the uh, USS New Jersey. Yes, that's, he was. That, that was a big ship with a big crew, so he could have done a lot of different things. Well, I think I got his, uh, he passed away a few years ago, and I got his DD-214, and it said he was doing embroidery on the ship, <laughs> which is crazy. So I'm sure uh, he did other they, things. They, the f- interesting thing is, is the Navy has all those people out there. And it would not train them and pay them if it didn't need them. Exactly. And I think he also made signs because he was he made signs uh, in his later life doing with his own business. So, yeah, there you go. That's that's clear how you could use that. And thank you for wanting to serve. I understand that it doesn't work out for everybody, but it's a nice sentiment. So, okay. do you want me to start with my last name? Yes, please. My my family says it Baronic. Okay. Some of my other, some of my cousins say it differently. And when I uh, was an ensign joining my first squadron, uh, they they asked us, "What do you want your call sign to be?" So I had gotten clever. This the year was 1981. I got clever and I thought I would be Bionic Baronic. <laughs> So I showed up there, and I was very skinny, and I was brand new, and the pilot I was flying with, he was only a few years older than me, but still, you know, he'd, he'd already been around and stuff, and he goes, I can't call you Bionic. So he shortened it to Bio, and that stuck for uh, throughout my career. That's awesome. Most of the guys, when they uh, tell us that they're going to ask us what our call sign, guys are thinking of, you know, I want to be Shark, or I want to be Killer, or right. something like that. And, you know, when you show up as a new guy in a fighter squadron, you just look like a new guy, you know, like a dork or (laughs) doofus. Right. That's true. So you started in 1981. Did you go right? You didn't go to the academy, though. Uh, So I went to Navy ROTC. Okay. For me, that that was good. I was very glad that I went to ROTC. And I graduated. I got my degree in 1979. And then I uh, went to training for almost two years. Wow. uh, Several different uh, training squadrons to prepare me to join a fighter squadron as a Rio. I had wanted to be a fighter pilot, but my eyesight went bad in college. And I was I was distressed about this because I couldn't think of what else I wanted to do. But I soon learned that the back seat of the F-14, the guy in the back seat, can wear glasses. <laughs> the F-14 was brand new, and so I go. That, that's what I'll aim for. That's awesome. Now explain what a Rio is. 
Okay. Rio is a radar intercept officer, and it's spelled R-I-O, and, and we said Rio. I mean, some, some people want to make it Rio or something. Anyway, we said Rio. And in the F-14, the radar was designed in the 1960s, even oh. though the, the Tomcat was a modern fighter into the 80s, and it served until 2006. The original radar was designed in the 60s, and they needed a second crewman in there to operate the radar during the most intense envisioned scenarios, which was defending an aircraft carrier from a raid by Soviet bombers. And that may sound far-fetched, but during the Cold War, you know, Western nations and the Soviet Union had these amazing forces, you know, that were capable of doing damage to each other. Oh, yeah. I was so, in, I'm dating yeah. myself, too, but I was in high school during the Cold War, so all the stuff that was in your book is things that I read about. We used Newsweek magazine for the civics class. Uh-huh. So, yeah, when you were talking about the uh, Straits of Hormuz and everything, I was like, oh, my God, I totally remember that. Well, yeah, and, and I had to explain a little bit of that because I'll bet a lot of people, I mean, it's distant, you know, history, and but at the time, it was, it was the big thing. Iran was uh, noisy and anti-United States, and they were threatening to disrupt the flow of oil that would have affected many countries around the world. And they had taken our, our uh, people hostage. They had taken our embassy hostage. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, our embassy people hostage. Yeah, so when we were out there throughout the 1980s, that was a big threat to stability in the region. And, you know, it's funny to think how suddenly Iraq became a threat, but that was for a whole different reason. So, Yeah, it's very strange how all those things move around and change and everything. So getting back to you being a fighter pilot, like, tell me about when you first started. Like, how did that go? You mean when I actually started flying fighters or how did I yeah, get when you were idea? when you were the FNG in, the, in your squadron? <laughs> Very good. You got that from my book, huh? Yes. You know, you show up to a squadron and... It's interesting for me to think back on on that time. I was 23 years old. Wow. I had been dreaming of this from the time I was about 10 or 12 years old. And then, you know, as you get older and you get out of high school and you go to college, you you say, okay, I'm actually getting, I'm on the path to joining a fighter squadron, you know, or flying fighters. And then you go to training for a couple of years. And then when you walk through the door of that squadron, that is the day you are there. You're on the threshold of your dream. And on the one hand, I had so little idea what it was really <laughs> going to be like. But then on the other hand, the squadron, you know, they get they get new guys all the time. They're interested in making you a part of the squadron. But still, you're a new guy. So there's, you know... They kind of have to, like, break you in. So, you know, they, they tease you sometimes and stuff like that. But, but you know, they don't want to alienate you. Or, so you show up at the squadron, and right away, I mean, they put me onto a flight that, that first day, as I recall. I actually had to drive home and get my flight gear because oh, I really? didn't think I'd be flying that day. Yeah, <laughs> You must have gotten some razzing about that. They kind of, you know, in the world of new guy <laughs> things, that's like – not the worst thing you can do because you know you're in a transition you don't know when you're going to start you know in other squadrons another squadron i was in there was a guy who showed up in san diego and didn't have quarters for a few days and he slept in his car for a few days and so he got called uh, 
he got a call sign based on that. I'm, I'm trying to think which guy it is. I'm not going to put him on report <laughs> right now. But uh, so, you know, there's guys do all kinds of uh, funny things uh, in the early days. Oh, that's that's exciting to being. Well, you actually did everything that you want to do from when uh, you were a kid. Yes, I did. I, I was very fortunate in that regard, Mel. I, uh, I got to live my dream. And this, it would have been sad if I, that was, I realized my dream at age 23, but then, uh, you know, as you would learn from reading the books, then I had another dream and that was to become a Top Gun instructor. And then after that, I had another dream and that was to command an F-14 squadron. And so, you know, each one of those, they add, you know, a whole order of magnitude in terms of uh, challenge and living the dream. So what would you say? I mean, this book is great. We were talking before, and it's a nice big book. It has some great photos that you have taken, and, and some other people, of course. Most of the photos are from you, and, and you had to do it on film back in the day. This book, I'm sorry, but this book is just awesome. What was the well, most thanks. exciting flight that you've done, if you have one? You know, I had I had a lot of exciting flights, as you can imagine. I've I've got about two thousand five hundred F fourteen flight hours. Mm-hmm. And you know, when I say about, the real number is two thousand four hundred and ninety nine point seven. And if people people may not know what flight hours means, but that means I have uh, probably just over one thousand separate flights. Wow! Uh, and that's over the course of a twenty year career. But but in terms of photography. I'll tell you one of the most exciting pictures was, and it's in this book, it's that that climbing picture of the F-14 with the afterburners blazing out behind it. And the F-14's afterburners, you know, I measured them on the on the picture, and the the fit the afterburner makes a cone of fire that's like 50 feet long. Wow. And the reason that, that this was exciting was because uh, for the first part, it was it was visually exciting to see it. it. We took this picture shortly after sunset, and you know we saw afterburners all the time because we were flying with other airplanes. Afterburner, they lit, we all lit our afterburners for various reasons. But when we did this, we were in formation and just like fixated because I was I took a series of photos, and so we were fixated on the afterburners, and it's just a a fascinating thing because it it looks like it's uh, it, it it just looks like it's a piece of crystal because it's it's flame and it also is very stable it's not a flickering flame like a candle flame I mean it looks like a solid object mm-hmm. it's so it's just incredible to watch and the reason it was exciting is that taking the these pictures we burned a little bit more fuel than we planned. Oops. And so the sun was going down. We had a mission that lasted about an hour and a half. The first thing that I did was I called the aircraft carrier and I said, you know, hey, can we get aerial refueling? Because that was a very common request. Right. And their answer was no. (laughs) That was a very common answer. And so we, and so my pilot and I, we sat there and we go, oh my gosh, you know, I mean, it wasn't an emergency right now, but it reduced our flexibility. So we were, he was very ginger with the throttles, the whole flight. 
and we were very careful, parsimonious with our fuel, and, and we got away with it. We landed without getting in any trouble. <laughs> well, for people who don't know, I mean, as, as the Rio, are you the one who you have to measure the fuel and make sure that you have enough to go to your to your point A to point B and back? I mean, to do your well, mission and then head back to the air, aircraft carrier. That's good. I kind of uh, I kind of uh, got off track. When the Rio runs the radar, but he's also responsible for communication and navigation. Okay. Yes. Now I I will tell you that any Navy pilot, an F-14 pilot, you know, he can navigate and communicate all by himself. And because because pilots go through training and they have to fly solo a lot of the times, and there's and most Navy fighters nowadays are single seat fighters, so these guys can do it themselves. But since there was a second person in the airplane, in the F-14 community and in other communities, they established uh, crew responsibilities. That way, there's no doubt and no discussion. You know, so that was my responsibility was navigation and communication. In terms of fuel management, that is such a fundamental concern for right. the safety of the airplane that the pilot and the Rio together share fuel management responsibilities. No, that makes sense. That makes sense. Yeah. So I'm, I have so many questions, but I just don't know what, like you were, you were in the Straits of Hormuz during all the, the Cold War, which is just incredible. I mean, you had a lot of uh, interaction with MiGs and everything. MiGs, anybody who's seen Top Gun, the Russian, there were the Russian fighter planes back in the day. Did you have a lot of interaction with them? I, I was reading that they they like to test the waters of the international, you know, where they could and could not cross. Yep. Well, I hate to say it, but unfortunately, I did not have a lot of interaction with MiGs. Mm -hmm. Uh, when we were on deployment, and and that's because most of the planes that we saw were the Soviet bombers and patrol planes. Okay. And believe me, those those get boring uh, pretty fast. <laughs> you know, if it, if they were MiGs, they were uh, small fighters, and we would be maneuvering with them and and stuff like that, just because that's what they do. Right. But the patrol planes come out, and they're large. You know, they're the size of, of airliners. And the U.S., you know, we the United States has patrol planes also, but the Soviets used to fly their patrol planes out, and they'd try to sneak up on aircraft carriers, and we were there ready to intercept them just to let them know, you know, there we have our defenses up, we're capable, you know, don't get uh, don't get uh, arrogant, you guys, because we'll we'll be here watching you. That's pretty so, cocky to have a whole like airliner think they could sleep, sneak up on a battleship. Or aircraft carrier. <laughs> yes, a warship. Yeah, warship. I know. I knew what you meant. Yeah. Well, um, you know that that comment, Mel. The ocean is huge, and so one airliner quickly becomes just a tiny speck. And so uh, what we had was, you know, there were uh, we had radars, of course. And, and that makes an airliner very visible, or, or a Soviet patrol plane, or nowadays a Russian patrol plane. Right. So you're, you were saying your navigation or radar system didn't change since the 1960s, and they just changed it, like, what, 14 years ago? Oh, let me tell you, the, F, <laughs> the original F-14 was designed in the 60s, first flew in 1970, and it started in Navy squadrons in 1974 was the year. And then the F-14 
that was the F-14A, the original model. And that continued to fly until around 2001 or 2002. So about, you know, 26 years roughly. And it had most of the same basic equipment. Now, they, they could update the software and they could also, they could make some, some improvements such as we were able to carry a targeting pod in the 1990s and that had GPS receiver in it. Right. And so they were able to make other improvements and then they made a, a couple of up improved versions of the F-14 that came out in the uh, late 1980s and those are the ones that served until 2006. So when the F-14 was retired, you know, it was the, the versions of the latest versions, they were still effective and impressive, but they were just getting long in the tooth. And the reason is that the Navy decided in 19... Now, I'm, I'm, I'm really going into this big... That's okay. It's, it's very interesting. I love it. The, the Navy decided... Secretary Cheney, Secretary of Defense, uh, around 1991, he decided in favor of uh, modifying the F-18 Hornet. And so when he made that decision, the F-14 was, you know, going to be allowed to, to wither and, and go out of service. And the Hornet was evolved into the Super Hornet. So that that's why the F-14, you know, by the time they retired it, it was getting kind of old. So what happens to the pilots who are flying the F-14s and then they go out of, you know, they, they get retired? Do they just move on to the, to the Hornets? That's a good question because pilots have a lot of options. I, th I would say probably most of them shifted to, to Super Hornets or Hornets, yes. And then, you know, a certain number, uh, it, w it was late in their career or they, were, they just couldn't find a spot for them, so they would offer them a desk job or allow them to get out, something like that. The interesting thing is the uh, backseaters, mm -hmm. because uh, most of most Hornets are only single-seat airplanes. Oh. So what they would do with the backseaters is they would allow some of them to go to other types of airplanes, like maybe the E-2 Hawkeye. And uh, actually, a few of them probably converted, may, may have converted to pilots because the Navy had a program for backseaters to uh, to convert to pilots. And then there were some two-seat Hornets that some that a lot of backseaters moved up to uh, to those also. But would you be able to be a pilot with your eyesight, though? Well, that was part of the program. They the Navy evaluated it and they said um, yes, even if you did not have perfect eyesight. You could have, it, I, I think the, the number was something like 2040 or 2070, one of those. So it was, it was a moderate degradation as long as you could wear glasses and get 2020. And they accepted that for, for the Rio to pilot conversion. Well, they had to. I and, mean, look at all the money they spent on the pilots. That would be yeah. an awful yep. waste of money for just to be like, throw them at a desk job. Yes, and now there's some there's some rules about uh, allowing some kinds of eye surgery, and and that's about all I know about that because I you know I don't know what the specifics are and they may change and stuff like that. So you were a pilot. How long were you a pilot until you went to Top Gun and then you went back to being a pilot again? Okay, so I was a Rio. Mm -hmm. Rio, sorry. I'm always that's okay. I'm always going to correct you, but I don't want anybody <laughs> to think I'm I'm trying to pass you can't myself correct off. Me, that's okay. <laughs> okay, okay. So when I went to Top Gun, it was about it was pretty early in my career. It was about 18 months after I joined that first squadron. Wow. Yeah. 
and my commanding officer is the guy who made that decision and i i still talk to him and he reminds me he goes bio he goes you did a good job at top gun that proved i made a good decision and he goes you know some guys in the squadron thought you were too young to go or too junior and i go okay well thanks skipper <laughs> <laughs> but you were but also- I, I i was uh, very fortunate that i um that i was paired up with a very talented and conscientious pilot and so you know we worked together and and we did well together after I graduated from the Top Gun class, mm-hmm. it was almost two years before I went back as an instructor. Okay. So yeah. what do you do in between the class and the instruction? Go back to flying? I went back to my regular Real. squadron. And, yep, I went back to my regular squadron. I went on another deployment. I tried to apply some of what I'd learned at, at the Top Gun school. And that was part. that is part of the theory of Top Gun. They trained, you know, they can only train a certain number of people, right. but they expect those people to go back and pass on their training. Well, I mean, of course that makes sense because not everyone makes it to Top Gun. So right. if, if, you're, right. if your CL thought that you were the best out there to go to the school, then you were probably the best to teach the rest of the pilots and reels around you. You know, I, I kind of did a little bit of that, but I, as I think back now, I probably didn't do enough of it. But, you know, my squadron, uh, we had smart leadership in the squadron, and they put me to work and where they thought I would do best and all that. So, Because when you're in a squadron, when, even when you're a young lieutenant, junior grade or lieutenant, you know, you, you're, you're low on the decision right. uh, tree, and you do what people tell you to do. And they don't want to see you as that cocky guy. Uh, yeah, there's a, lot of, uh, there's a lot of group dynamics in a fighter squadron. Now, reading the book, you had a lot of different titles in your fighter squadron. Like you're the uh, aviations officer, the operations officer, and then you were the dreaded personnel, <laughs> which I thought was funny. <laughs> What's the worst thing I could do? Oh, here we go. Thanks. Never put that out to the universe, bio, ever. The same. <laughs> but it must have been—it must have been kind of empowering for the enlisted men and women to uh, have you there. At least you were trying to upgrade their, you know, the uh, aviation area and their and their workstation and get them get them their raises and bonuses and their and all that stuff. Because it's because it, from what I read, it was just kind of probably not on purpose kind of pushed to the side yeah mel that is a good i that's a, a valid summary of uh, of what the situation was and you know organizations have you know cycles of of growth and whatever and and this particular squadron they had really focused on operations and they were very strong in terms of flying and they kind of neglected this this administrative and support function and, and like I say in the book, you know, nobody, I didn't join the Navy to be a personnel officer. <laughs> right. But when they assigned me that, I, and, I, and when they assigned me, I did not know what I was getting into. But I said, you know, I've got enough self-esteem. I'm going to try to do a good job. And I found this, this uh, work center, the personnel work center. Those guys were like, I don't know, starved for attention or something because because as, as soon as I started working with them, and I give, and I give even 
you know, more credit than I deserve goes to the, our chief petty officer. He came, who was assigned, who had not been there. He was assigned, and he came in and started working with them. But they responded, and they, you know, they grew into their responsibilities and started doing a good job. And so that that's a leadership lesson, kind mm-hmm. of, you know. Well, just think. Yes. I mean, they're they're they are as important as you. I mean, you're doing the mission, but if they don't work on the engines and do whatever else they need to, then your mission fails. Exactly. That's true. So, I mean, I think they, they probably thought, wow, this, this Rio, this pilot is helping us out. And the same with the, the chief petty officer. Yeah. Especially if they don't, if they didn't get any rec- not necessarily recognition, but at least saying good job. Cause that goes yeah, a long, that goes a long just, way in any, yeah. in any business. Yes. And, and not only, it's not just a feel good uh, situation because right. when the chief arrived, he was a, he, that was his career pattern. He was a, uh, you know, an administrative professional. That was his career. So when he arrived, he made sure he conducted training for them and he held them to performance standards. I mean, he didn't, you know, he didn't write it down or whatever. Right. He said, look guys, this is the, what you need to do. This is the way you need to do it. So start doing your job correctly. You know, he held them accountable and, you know, and, and they did. They had, so they had, uh, they had, you know, I hate to say it, the carrot and the stick, I guess. Right. But I mean, that's what, that's what it takes in all, all businesses. And that was one thing that I liked about the Navy that I didn't even realize. I mean, when I was a teenager and I wanted, you know, I wanted to be a pilot, I had just envisioned zooming around the mm-hmm. sky, you know, and then, and then you land and go, you know, put more gas in it and I'm going flying again. <laughs> It's not like that uh, very much, although on, on some days, if you're doing like a, uh, you know, a busy operational or training program, you will fly a couple of times a day. And it's it's just fun. You know, flying, flying, flying is very challenging. It's demanding. And the Navy de- demands professionalism. But you're flying in a jet fighter. So it's fun. It's, yeah. That, I mean, it totally sounds like fun. So. Landing on an aircraft carrier, the first time you did that, were you like, this is exciting or, oh, my gosh? The, the, the first few times I did it, <laughs> I really, I barely remember it. And I, I write about those in my uh, second book that came out, which is called Before Top Gun Days. Mm-hmm. See, I've got three books. My first book is Top Gun Days, and it talks about my first squadron and becoming a Top Gun instructor and working on the movie Top Gun. Right. And then the next book is called Before Top Gun Days, and it talks about how I got there. It focuses on my training, and it has a few stories from being in the fleet just as kind of a payoff, but it focuses on the training aspect. And in that book, Before Top Gun Days, I admit that the first time I landed on the carrier, I was really... I was behind the airplane, which is a saying in aviation, you're, you know, you're behind the airplane. And fortunately though, the pilot I was flying with had already been a uh, qualified F-4 Phantom pilot and he was just converting to the F-14. So he, he got us through it, you know. That's gotta yes. be exciting though. It, it was very exciting. And the great thing is it provides a point of comparison 
because just a few months later, or you know, I took a couple of I took a couple of weeks off, did other things. And a few months later, when I started going to flying to on the carrier regularly, I really got up to speed. And it's the same thing with dog fighting. It's the same thing with all these other things. Once you do this a, a little bit, you pick it up. Or if you don't pick it up, you know, you're in the long wrong line of work. <laughs> That's true. That's true. So, yeah. How long have you been? We're, we're going to delve into your personal life a little bit. Your wife, where did you meet her? Is she your high school sweetheart? <laughs> Not quite, but I met my wife in a bar in San Diego. So, I was a uh, junior lieutenant or maybe a lieutenant JG, which is a mm-hmm. very junior rank. And she was a senior at uh, San Diego State. We just, and I asked her to dance. <laughs> that was the beginning. And that was it. So she's been with you for most of your Navy career. So it's oh, not, yes. It didn't yes, come so. as a shock to her. She didn't just, that's good. No, she, and she had already dated a, a one or two guys who had, who had been F-14 Rios or oh. in F-14 squadrons. I don't know if they were pilots or Rios. So that's, that's always interesting to read. Like when you say, okay, I have to go, I have to be, go on deployment. You were on deployment. On the on various aircraft carriers for seven years of your deployment. Well, here's what it is. It was uh, the maximum time back then was about seven and a half months, mm-hmm. and then they shortened it to six months. But but now since the global war on terror, some of the uh, deployments have been extended just because of requirements. So the typical deployment is about six months, uh, and then over the course of my 20-year career, yes, I was I was on ships for almost six years. Wow! Do you ever look back at that and say, oh, "Wow"? Well. That was one of the main reasons I got out. And right. I'm, I'm saying this for people to appreciate those who do serve. Mm-hmm. It, it was difficult to, for me, it was just increasingly difficult to leave behind everything. Right. Uh, my wife, my house, my car, you know, stuff like that. Your Corvettes? My Corvettes, yes. Do you still have one? I do. I have one. Uh, I got one uh, last year. <laughs> but uh, I buy them like uh, a year old. Right. I had a, a Porsche 911 once a few years ago. And after a couple of months, I told my wife, this this was a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a Corvette guy. So you've been a Top Gun instructor, and you're, it's probably the crowning achievement in your career is to be the commander of the, of the checkers, right? The, uh, the checkmates, yep. Checkmates, sorry. And you know what? That is, uh, I'll admit, it's a little bit of an unusual squadron name, but you get used to it. We were the fighting checkmates of VF-211. And yes, that was uh, that was a job that, you know, I I didn't even dream of. And then once I got into a squadron, I, at first I, I couldn't imagine how one guy could run a whole fighter squadron. <laughs> And then, Mel, you know, you're, you should have told me this uh, if I had known you years ago, because once I became a commanding officer, I learned that it's really a very challenging job. And some of my friends have been squadron commanders, and I, I don't know, I guess it came easier for them or something, but for me, it was very challenging. <laughs> And I hint at, uh, at some of that in the Tomcat Rio. I tell some of the things we dealt with, but, you know, I, I, um, I'll just, just to keep going on this. <laughs> I'm sure for everyone who does, who has that 
that lofty goal, you always think it's one thing and then it's like, oh, it's something else. But it's it's still amazing to be a commanding officer of your own squadron. Well, it is. It's, it's a real honor. And it's it's a real honor to to think of what the, the responsibility the Navy gives you and the trust they give you. And before I before I say my other thought, I will, I will agree with you. I was talking to one of my friends who has familiarity with the Navy, and he just had this vision of being a squadron commander. And I go, and when I told him some of the stuff that that you had to actually deal with, he goes like, "Oh my gosh, I didn't know it was like that." But then, I, like I said, I admit, you know, I think for some of my friends, their squadron CO tour, because I know a lot of guys who were squadron COs. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I don't know if it came easier for them or their circumstances were different or whatever, but, but mine was pretty, you know, it was, it was challenging, but we as a squadron, that squadron worked together to make it a better squadron. And, and they, when I say better, I mean, improving our, our, our airplanes and they succeeded. And very early on, I said, you know what, I want to be their commanding officer, you know, that they deserve. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I want to, I want to live up to their expectations. And you so did. That, that kind of helped. Well, I, I guess I did. Okay. <laughs> but I, you know, I'm, I wish I could say, uh, you know, I won the award as best CEO or something like that. <laughs> but, but I mean, uh, you're, if your crew is happy with you, then that's the final thing. And well, we, I think we, uh, I think we ended up on good terms. So I'll take that. Yes. Yeah, I'm being a little bit modest. But. <laughs> Just patting yourself on the back a bit. And you see a lot of things nowadays where uh, commanding officers are removed from duty and stuff. So, you know, for whatever reason, that's neither here nor there. But at least that didn't happen to you. Or, or I don't think that happened as much well, back when you were an officer. It didn't happen as often. Right. And uh, and there are groups have done those uh, those. Uh, collected the statistics but it did but it did happen back then and i remember during some of the darker days i was going you know i hope i don't get removed (laughs) early there's reasons for um, for our situation and i talk about some of them in the book uh the squadron had worked a little bit had worked very hard before the deployment started and then i mean i'll just i'll just give away a little bit of it i'm I'm Mm going to just and then the plan was to use the 30 days before the deployment as a get well period and that's very common in uh, in navy squadrons and in fact it's planned in in the operational plan but in our case they uh, navy engineers had discovered uh serious uh fractures in in the, a major airframe structure, and that could lead to structural failure. And so they said, you know, almost all F-14s need to be inspected. And so what our and this inspection is not just a flashlight. You had to partly disassemble the airplane. And whenever you partly disassemble an airplane, one, it takes multiple days. Mm-hmm. Two, reassembling it takes days. And three, you have to test it and make sure all these things are connected right and repair all these other pro- Anyway, the 30 days before our deployment, instead of getting well and fine-tuning our operation, our sailors worked seven days a week, Ugh. 12 hours on, 12 hours off. But unfortunately, and, they had to because yeah, your I lives know. were on the line. 
Yeah. And then at the end of that, they get on the carrier and go on a six-month deployment. So. But I like in one of the chapters where you, you were talking to a doctor and she said use the colonoscopy camera to check yes. for fractures. I like that. Oh, she saved us, you know. In that particular situation, that that did work, and that saved us a lot of time. And also, you know, it was a, that was a bright spot, and it was amusing. Yes, yeah, so that was a great idea uh, that she said that. So, are you going to write another book and take more photos? And I mean, <laughs> I mean, publish. Well, I mean, publish more more photos because all of these all the photos in your book are just amazing, and especially the well, one you were talking about before, the things you don't see with your naked eye. Yeah. And the afterburner. Yep. It's, uh, I mean, well, in aviation, you know, um, spectacular sights are, are just around the corner or just around the, the next cloud or whatever. <laughs> I don't think I see another book, but, you know, I, I didn't really see this one coming. So, <laughs> so but this book, Tomcat Rio, Tom has Rio. my best stories and, and my best photos in it. Besides Top Gun, do people use you for any... Um consultancy on movies or TV? No, I didn't get into that. I uh, I was an instructor at Top Gun when they filmed the movie, and right. so all of us instructors helped to some extent with the movie, and they right. put our names in the credits. Nice. And, and they told us, at first they, they wrote our names down. When I say they, I mean Paramount Pictures and the, and the movie team. They wrote our names down, and then they said, oh, the credits are too long. You're not going to be in the credits. <laughs> And then, and I'm going like, whatever, you know, and you can't, I can't, I can't do anything about it. And then we went to see the movie and there we were. And so that was a nice little uh, jazz, but, but I was in the right place at the right time. So I helped them. Well, well, we all helped them by flying the airplanes and, and helping to plan the movie. And then a a pilot and I went up to Paramount for two days after filming and we helped them to write dialogue and, and cut the flying scenes together. Oh, that's and cool. So yeah, because that, that was fascinating, also, and that's described in uh, Top Gun days, not nice. not in this book. <laughs> so yeah, I well, you were probably out in California when when no eighty six. Not I wasn't out there then, but anyway. Oh, I was. Oh yeah, I was in San Diego when the movie came out. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, that was that was <laughs> big fun. That's exciting. Now you also have an, this comes out in an ebook as well. You said it. It does. Thank you uh, mm-hmm. for mentioning that. And the ebook looks good. I mean, I've got a Kindle, so I downloaded it and I mm-hmm. looked through it and I go, oh, that it looks good. But but the hard copy, I think we talked about this bef- you know before we started, right? But mm-hmm. I asked them to use larger paper. My previous two books are on six by nine inch paper. Right. And the photos look good, but I, I knew the pictures in this book would be my best pictures, and so I asked the publisher, and so they used larger paper. And the pictures are almost twice as big. And it really makes a difference. Uh, I'm very pleased with how it came out. It does. And dust jackets, I know dust jackets make, to me, they make a difference. My parents had a bookstore growing up. So, I mean, dust jackets are, I think they're huge, honestly. Really? I think so. Where did your parents have a bookstore, if I can ask? In New Hampshire. Okay. Oh, that had to be fascinating. Yes, used furniture, uh, books, that kind of thing. So it's funny, My uh, off topic, my father-in-law, he climbed Mount Everest, and he wrote a book about it. 
and he was asking about dust jackets and I was like, you got to have a dust jacket. And he just kind of blew me off. And then he put a dust jacket on the book and he's like, oh, you were so right. Because you can, you know, you can see so much of the photo and you, your photo is on the cover of the book, though. But I don't know. OK, I'll, I'll I'm a fan of dust things. jackets. Just saying. I'll tell you a few things about dust jackets. One, in my personal library a few years ago, this was probably 15 or more years ago. I took the dust jackets almost off of most of my books and threw them away. <laughs> and then my wife and I were watching TV and they said, oh, the dust jacket adds a lot of value to a book. So I go, oh, OK, I guess I threw away a lot of money. <laughs> this dust jacket right here, mm -hmm. that image was created. It's the only uh, it's computer generated. And of, of all the photos that I took, uh, this is a picture I could not have taken. And so I worked with a, uh, a very talented uh, computer artist. He put this together and he captured it perfectly. And then my editor, David Robinson, who was uh, worked for many years for, with National Geographic Books, mm. And then he's retired, but he, but he and I met, and he, and he uh, agreed to be my editor. When he was looking through the pictures with me, he looked at this picture, and he goes, oh, there's your cover right there. <laughs> you, well, you got to listen really to the guy who worked for National Geographic, I mean, honestly. Uh, what's that? I, cut you I said you have to listen to the guy who worked for National Geographic, honestly. Well, this guy, and I write a little bit about him, he was a Navy pilot around 1960. Ooh. And then uh, when he got out of the Navy, he, did, he only served for a few years for, for reasons. And then he got out of the Navy and he worked for National Geographic, had a nice long career with them. And he is just, I mean, he's the guy who made this book more fun for me uh, because uh, I like what he, how he edited my writing. And then when I would send him my first draft of a chapter and he'd send it back to me and I'd read something, and I'd go, God, that's good. And I go, wait a minute. And I look back at my first draft and I go, oh, I wrote that. OK, that's good. I, I still like it. But like I said before, I, I feel like I'm with you there and, you know, Thanks. in the, you know, in the backseat and in your wheel, flying, you know, going around and doing all of your exciting adventures. Well, that that's my mindset when I uh, when I was sitting down to write. I'm just like telling telling you the story. So, well, you do a great, great job. And if people want to get a hold of you, how can they do so? The easiest way to learn about this is to go to my website, topgunbio.com, T-O-P-G-U-N-B-I-O.com. Mm -hmm. But to buy the books, go to uh, Amazon or Barnes & Noble or any uh, online bookseller. And then I'm also I'm on Facebook, Instagram. Um, but not only online, we have to support our local booksellers, too. So if you if you're not quarantining or if you can order it from there. You definitely want to help out the local booksellers if you can. Well, I totally agree with that. You know, Amazon I, is great, I, but, you know, you'll see your, your neighbor, Matt, who owns the bookstore down the street, and, you know, why not get it from him? Mel, thank you for adding that. I still enjoy going to books, oh, uh, bookstores. Too. Luckily, my wife still likes going to bookstores. <laughs> and uh, so, it's, yep, uh, yeah, it's I not, agree with you. It's not the same looking on Amazon, looking at through books and actually picking up the book and looking at it. And, you know, I have, I have a Kindle myself, but I still love a good book, the feel of a yes. book. Yes. I'm about 50-50 probably. I still buy about half real books. Mm -hmm. 
maybe more than half because I, I like them too. But for traveling, I get the Kindle is a lot better. You don't want to, I mean, you're not going to carry around like, I mean, if you like the Harry Potter books or whatever, that's what, nine books? That's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it, it has practical benefits, yes. Yes, so Tomcat Rio buy this book. It's great. Local bookseller, or if you can, get to your uh, local bookseller, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, wherever books are sold. Thank you so much, Dave, for joining me today on Radio Soup. Well, thank you for having me. I've enjoyed talking to you. Best wishes with your program and, and everything else. Thank you.